Have a seat. Good morning, everyone. It is my pleasure to be here with you today, for our whole family to be here. Um, it, it's a joy for us because Summit Church is actually home for us, and specifically Lake Mary is home for us. So, in fact, Lake Mary has happened since we have been gone in Kenya. So for us to actually have a campus near home is kind of fun. So if we ever do end up coming back from the field, this will be home for us. So it's just our pleasure, actually, to be here this morning and that I have a chance to share a little bit about who we are and what we do in Kenya. As OJ said before, we've been in Kenya for seven years. Um, really, what, what we are sent uh, as missionaries to Kenya through Summit, there's a bunch of slides that are coming up here. It's a combination of a little bit of adventure, because Kenya is a beautiful country, People here that are friends, people that we get to work alongside of. You'll see pictures of pastors, some of the women. You'll see students that are up here uh, that, that we continue to work with. Um, the women and children tend to be a big focus of what we do in our community. They tend to be the most vulnerable. And so you'll see pictures of some of them here. Uh, there's beadwork that's involved. In fact, it, during this, uh, in the middle of, uh, in between services, we'll be out there in the lobby to tell you more about kind of who they are and what we do. But we live in a, a culture in Kenya where women and children tend to be the most vulnerable. And so what, what we do as missionaries in Kenya really is we work alongside of the local church trying to figure out ways that we can come alongside the church and really be the hands and feet of Jesus within the poor communities of Nairobi. So we do that through big relationships that we have with churches, with pastors, um, the day in and day out life of, of living in that community. So we, a lot of what we do takes on a strong community development feel. Uh, and part of that um, we, we, we always are looking at the macro, the small things, or I'm sorry, the big things and the micro side of things in community development. Um, and so we'll be talking about that a little bit today, even as we look at the life of Jesus, kind of how he viewed community in the context as well. Um, one of the things that we talk about uh, as, as we minister in that context is, is what we call the pastoral circle. And the first step of this circle is that you have to be able to be in the context and be involved in the lives of people in order to be able to be in that community, to be able to relate to people. If you ever want to focus on discipleship and walking with people, you can't do that from a distance. You have to actually be involved and be in relationship with people. Um, one of the benefits of living in Kenya is experiencing how African culture closely relates to biblical culture. When uh, Jesus talks about the good shepherd, it's not really a big uh, stretch for us or for a lot of Kenyans or Africans because pretty much everywhere you turn, there are sheep and goats and cows, plenty of them. So when Jesus says he's the good shepherd, it's not too difficult to really figure out and understand that. There are other things like familial culture or the rites of passage ceremonies within the culture, the land ownership laws, marriage traditions, all of those things are very similar to, you know, to African life, the things that we even see in the Bible. And so for, for us to be in that context, there's a lot of things about Scripture that actually we get to understand and see um, just because it's such a, already ingrained in, in the African culture. So working with a poor or the life in Kenya, one of the challenges is that you get to actually taste the disparity or the injustice that is, is surrounded there. Um, Kenya, or, or the, 
the, the, every year there's a global corruption index that comes out, and Kenya is generally at the top of that list, somewhere near the top of that list as far as the amount of corruption that's within the society. Um, one of the easiest ways or most tangible ways to sort of feel corruption is through the police in Kenya, which sounds a bit unfortunate. But uh, it is fairly uh, normal for someone to be driving down the road and to get sort of pulled over by the police. They're usually standing there in pairs along the side of the road to pull you over, and they're usually just looking for an excuse to try to get a bribe out of you. Um, there have been times that we have been trained as, as a family, and I should maybe more speak for Cami and, and maybe Sam, our, our youngest years ago, is that whenever we get pulled over by the police, uh, just to be ready to go ahead and break out the tears at any moment, because that seems to have an effect on the police that would pull you over, that they sort of give you a little bit more of compassion and grace and realize, oh, maybe we should just let these people go and not harass them for a bribe. Um, but uh, it's actually, you know, it, it's actually a tragic situation. It's much deeper than that because it applies to other situations as well. That even in our community, there are bars that are selling illegal alcohol, um, and they continue to be allowed to. Even though it's illegal, they bribe the police just to leave them alone. There are other situations where uh, there we, we've seen uh, homes for children, or they're sort of schools, but not really. That continue to uh, propagate uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking, and things like that that are, are there and they exist simply because the police are being bribed in, in, in order for them to continue to, to practice such things. In fact, in Kenya, the police brutality and injustice is such a high level that even IJM, International Justice Mission, has made that their primary cause of what they do in Kenya. They fight against police brutality and injustice. Um, the unfortunate thing when it comes to corruption and injustice that it, it tends to actually affect the poor, the marginalized, those that don't really have a voice in a society. And we see that quite a bit in our community. So that's part of what we do there. As part of us as being there, coming alongside the church, is to speak into these kind of things, these kind of injustices in our society. So one of the things that we talk about as far as for us to be able to be there is to have a ministry of presence and to be able to, to position for discipleship. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit today using those words. The idea of positioning for discipleship is to be able to, for, for us to be in such a place that we can actually be used of the Lord to be able to actually have a relationship with someone and tell them about Jesus. And so as, as we look at, at scripture this morning, I would like for you to reflect a little bit and think about where does God have you positioned? Where does the Lord have you? Where are you in life in such a way that you can see yourself as being used by the Lord in order to impact or disciple someone else? So we're going to take a look at how Jesus interacted with people. We, we've been looking at that for several weeks now. I've been keeping up with the sermons. And, uh, you know, as we look at this, we can actually see glimpses of how Jesus did this all throughout the various stories of his interactions with people. So in your bulletins this morning, in, in, alongside or in the backside of the announcements, uh, or if you brought your Bibles, we're going to read a portion of Scripture out of Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
So we're just going to stop there. The first two verses of Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bible open, you'll see there's actually, it goes into some of the parables. Very famous ones. Lost sheep, lost coins, lost son. And uh, I'm just going to be talking about the very first two verses in there. Gary is actually going to be coming back over the next couple weeks and leading us um, in a series that has to do with a lot of these parables. He's going to be talking about lost coins very soon. So I'm not going to step on his toes in any of that. We're just going to be looking at this very first part. Um, One of the things that I I like to do whenever we, we look at Scripture is to think about the context of what we're reading here in the book of Luke. One of my favorite things to look at with the Gospels is actually this timeline. It's a... it's really the, the writing of the, the New Testament, if we look at it. So we see the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And then if you look here, Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John, they're a little bit out of order. Normally it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the actual order of when these books were written. And often we, don't, we always sort of assume that the, the disciples or the, the, uh, the writers of the four Gospels were actually sitting there taking notes while they were living with Jesus or in the lifetime of Jesus Christ. But many of them actually, or a couple of them, were actually not even disciples or, or, or with Jesus at the time. They wrote these afterwards. What I really want to point out here as well is that Luke, you can see he really spent time with Mark, and actually he even had a chance to spend time with Paul, and after Paul's writing. So I can only imagine that there might have been times when Paul and Mark and Luke must have been together and been talking about Jesus and who he was and, and, and how he acted. And there were times that, that Paul, while he was in prison or, or, or as they were walking together, would have said, hey, Luke, let me tell you about the time that Jesus did this. Or there were other times that Luke probably said, hey, Paul, remind me again about that time when Jesus so-and-so, whatever. And so these were the interactions that were really happening in that time. And part of what I want to point out here as well, if you look at the year 70 that's there, uh, it was actually the fall of Jerusalem in that time period where the temple was destroyed And uh, it was a time of persecution for the early church in there. So while the Gospels were written after the time of Christ, in this time of Paul and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John as they were writing, the early church, they were going through hardship. They were going through persecution. And so part of that is what we want to take into as we read scriptures or when we look at the Gospels, always be thinking about, wow, this was a persecuted church. So what part of Luke was really trying to say in this, as he was telling about the life of Jesus, he was saying, hey, church or friends, let me tell you about who this Jesus was. I know that we're suffering. I know that we're in the midst of persecution. This is not easy. But can we just, let me just remind you about who Jesus was. He was good. And let me show you how he was good. And so as we look at these scriptures and we talk about these interactions, and Luke tells us about interactions with Pharisees and teachers, Um, is really pointing us to Jesus and and the character of who Jesus was. Um, So as as we look ahead as well, in this time of what we talked about, the the fall of Jerusalem, we're actually going to reflect a little bit more um, thinking through uh, the religious leaders of Judaism. Uh, Right here it talks about the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, Jesus was a rabbi. And so as he was walking through and as he was spending time with the disciples, he was actually being viewed sort of as an equal with some of these these Pharisees and teachers. But he was doing things very differently than they had ever experienced. And so they were often challenging Jesus 
and, and criticizing him and even chastising him for his behavior and what he was doing. So it would have been very unusual for a rabbi to be spending time with the unclean, with the sinners. And so I want us to look at a little bit at some of the culture that's involved here as well. Just like for us, whenever we're in Kenya, we have to look at the culture and think about the bigger picture before we can really understand the people and how, how, how we can actually come alongside and be effective. So the Pharisees had um, an endless list of rules that governed them, or governed people. The Pharisees gave an endless list of rules, virtually every aspect of life. But the Pharisees twisted and inflated those rules in order to serve themselves. Um, So to understand them, we want to look back, even before the Gospels, and we want to look back at the year 586 B.C., The Babylonian Empire destroyed the temple in Jerusalem at that time, and the Jews were exiled, and they were dispersed throughout the whole Babylonian Empire. And uh, it was in this time period that the Pharisees actually rose up. Um, It was a time when, obviously, they were dispersed, they were alone, they didn't have a temple, and so by their own means, they actually were able to go back to their roots, back to the Mosaic Law, and try to bring their people back in order to follow God and remember who God is. They actually called this time period, these 400 years, it's actually that time of period between the end of the, the Old Testament, Malachi, and the New Testament into Matthew. Most of Israel felt like that was a silent time from God, but it actually wasn't a very silent time at all. It was actually a time where Greek uh, philosophy and Greek culture really expanded throughout the Roman Empire. And those of you who like to study history, the the likes of Plato and Aristotle, the Greek philosophers, this was their time period. It was also a time where what we call the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew Bible, I'm sorry, the Greek Bible, it was... uh, the old Hebrew Bible was combined and put together and translated into Greek in this time period. And actually was the Bible that those that we, that we read about in the New Testament used as their scriptures. So Paul relied on the Septuagint. So all these things happened before Jesus Christ came. But the role of the Pharisees um, during this time, they, they sought to go back to these roots but they did so by means of their own interpretation. They altered the biblical text uh, based on whatever they felt like was right. They gave a high priority to legalism, which eventually became the core value of Judaism and, and Jewish identity. The Ten Commandments became three or 613 laws that were divided into 39 categories. And these rules, this religion carried on into the New Testament. And so this is really what they were bringing in and, and what the, the early church, the early disciples, the, as Jesus was, was, was ministering, these were the Pharisees that they were up against. They were, the, the Pharisees were stuck to the rules and to the religion. Their favorite law, in fact, to perpetuate was regarding the Sabbath. They would often criticize people. And in fact, there's, there's a portion of scripture where they're actually criticizing Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath. And Luke actually points that out in uh, Luke chapter 13. Luke actually was actually a doctor. And so he, I think he brought out this story specifically because he, he was interested in caring for people. But yet there was this dichotomy in, in between Pharisees and, and those that were actually trying to do, to do the right thing. And, and Jesus often was in the middle of that and really challenging what the Pharisees were, were teaching and who they were representing 
In all, they overlooked the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love others as yourself. They didn't really get it, the Pharisees. They really missed the point. They were stuck on legalism, but they didn't understand the point to the extent that when they looked at Jesus, they were missing the story. And so, in fact, what Jesus was doing is in, in the rest of this chapter, he was introducing these parables, and he told parables so that those around him would understand in such a way that, that he just wanted to tell a story to communicate who he was and to really challenge people's thought. But even in the midst of that, the Pharisees were not understanding Jesus' intentions. But others that were around him, his disciples, and including these tax collectors, these sinners, were hearing these stories, and it meant something to them. Uh, In other parts of Luke, we see that Luke focused on stories of Jesus' interaction with individuals. Uh, He talks about, in, in Luke chapter 5, He introduces Levi, who actually is a tax collector. And that interaction that Jesus has with Levi is is actually, he's calling Levi to be his follower, to be a disciple. Levi decides to to sell everything that he has and to follow Jesus. And in that process, Jesus actually renames Levi. He becomes Matthew, which actually the gift of God, which is the Matthew that gave us the gospel of Matthew. He himself was a tax collector, was one of these sinners. So Luke also goes on in that scripture as well to focus on the fact that we don't need, it's not those who are all well who need a physician, but it's those who are sick. And Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke, the doctor, really liked to focus on that. It's not not those that 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 are well that need, but those that are sick. We also see other stories of, of parables of Pharisees and tax collectors in Luke 18. Zacchaeus comes up in Luke 19. Zacchaeus, that little man, was a tax collector. And so I really feel like Luke really wanted to point out this dichotomy and, and, and sort of the, this, this pressure in society within the Roman culture, the Roman context, um, and really pull out that picture to focus on the disparity amongst people. There was religious disparity, social disparity, that was really affecting people in that day. So these tax collectors, they collected taxes from Jews for Rome. They acted as independent contractors. So they would actually go to the Roman government and they would actually make a way to barter with them that that basically said, hey, uh, okay, tax collector, if you bring X amount of money to us, we'll allow you to collect taxes. So at the end of every time period, they would, as long as they brought that particular amount that they agreed on, they were free to go and collect taxes. No questions asked. They were just free to go ahead and do as they pleased. So... 30 to 40% of someone's income could be taxed at that time. There were all sorts of different ways to tax people, not just through uh, just a salary or whatever else, but even as through commerce. As people were using the Roman roads, if you, that was a trade route or whatever, the tax collectors would be sitting near the roadside, and anybody who passed by, any merchant or whatever else, would have to pay some type of a tax in order to pass through um, something that would go back to the Roman government. So I can only imagine as well in, in looking at the Kenyan or the African context that there must have been times that these tax collectors also were accepting bribes from other people. Maybe there had to be a certain amount or maybe it was somebody that was somewhat known to that tax collectors, uh, that, that particular tax collector. Maybe there was some type of relationship. And so 
there were probably uh, situations where uh, somebody, a merchant, would come along and say, you know what, I don't have that amount today. Uh, can, can we just somehow work it out? And what if I give you, next time I give you something on the side, would you just let me pass this time or whatever? And so I can imagine that there must have been some compromise in there as well that really affected uh, the values or even the morals of some of these people. So these tax collectors, because of the pressure that they were putting on the, the Jewish citizens that were living there within the Roman Empire, uh, because of that pressure, they were hated. They were seen as immoral schemers. They collaborated with the Gentiles, with the Romans, and who were actually unclean. So they were socially rejected and shunned. They were political traitors because they were taking on the side of Rome. They were religiously excommunicated as apostates because of their behavior. They were not at all following the law. They were really not moral good people. So they had the worst mark on them of any person at the time. So when we look, uh, you know, even at the example that I used before, the police in Kenya, the police actually are hated. And it's hard for even us when you're driving down the road and you see a policeman to not just sort of cringe and squeeze the steering wheel as you're driving by because you have no idea what that encounter might come up on. And so this sort of there's this fear and even this anger and this bitterness that wells up at times because you realize the injustice that they bring and that they sort of overlord on the rest of society. Unfortunately, what we often see happen is that it is the poor and the marginalized, the, our friends, the people within our own community that tend to feel the brunt of those injustices as well. Because the wealthy, somebody who's driving a nice car, will easily, happily just throw a bribe out the window to the policeman and go on their way and not be bothered. But it's the poor in those situations that they won't be in a car, but actually one of the common things that happens, even in a public transportation, we have these vehicles called matatus, which are just vans. They, they're supposed to really only hold what is it, 16 people, I think, that even includes the driver and the conductor that's in there. But people pack in at times during rush hour. Um, Nathan Boyet here, I'm sure, has ridden quite a few matatus in his time in Kenya. So he, he'll tell you there are, there are times that you have to really squeeze in. It's technically not legal to squeeze into these vehicles more than the capacity. And so what will happen is if this vehicle is coming on the, up on the police... Possibly the conductor or the driver will give a bribe to, that, to the, the policeman and allow them to keep going. But if the policeman is not having a good day or maybe his pockets are already full, he'll actually tell the, the vehicle to pull over to stop. And the conductor, the guy who, who collects the money, will actually get in big trouble and usually he'll end up in prison. And then whoever did not have an official seat on, the, on that van actually ends up also going to prison. And so by prison, we, we just mean a place where you go and where they'll hold you until you can pay the fine uh, to be able to get out uh, or to pay your penalty for taking up that seat in that vehicle. Um, and so it might just be like, usually it's around maybe $20 or so of a fine to be able to get, get yourself back out of the so-called prison. But $20 to the people that we're working with is almost, for some of them, a month's salary. And so imagine being uh, just in, in a public vehicle and the police taking advantage of that situation and putting you in prison, and now you can't pay that bribe. You can't pay that fine. 
you'll end up just sitting there in that prison for months at times, and that will just destroy, especially if, let's say you're a father taking care of, you're, you're married, you're taking care of your kids. If you're not working that day, there you are in prison for months at a time because you can't get out. So it's affecting, so you're, you're not going to go to work. You're not going to be putting food on the table. Next month, your house is going to be locked up, or your rent, you can't pay rent. So you will, you'll basically completely uh, just disrupt your family. And it, a lot of things will be destroyed in there. Um, and so if you're wealthy in that context, usually you can get out of that. It's not a big deal. But it's really the poor that feel the extent, that burden of just simple, silly things, like just being an extra rider in that matatu, in that, in that van. Um, and I can just imagine as well that there were situations, there were times that as these tax collectors collected money from people that were just trying to, to put food on the table that day, there had to have been stories and situations where people really felt that weight and felt that burden and felt the anger and frustration of just, man, you just took money from my table. I cannot feed my children today. And so that's the desperation of the situation that we see here that Jesus was spending time with people like this. Jesus decided to, to go ahead and break all sorts of cultural and moral barriers and spend time with people who were hated. So OJ has been even telling us, or some, a phrase that keeps coming up with OJ is talking about the bigger, looking at the bigger picture of God's heart. And so when we look at Jesus sitting with a tax collector, what, what is God saying in that? What is he really trying to, to tell us as we look at the bigger picture? We can talk about things in our culture. Uh, if you want to get to know someone, we say, what, just look at their friends. Man is known by the company he keeps, or there's other phrases like birds of a feather flock together. So Jesus was okay to create this scenario in order to prove a point to those that were around him. There were the Pharisees, there were the tax collectors, but I believe that possibly the most important audience in this setting may actually have been the disciples who were with him. Jesus was showing them, and eventually he's showing us, that there's no class of people that is beyond the grace and the mercy of God. Jesus reached out to the lowest and the most vulnerable to offer them hope and salvation. Our love for others confirms that our faith is genuine. And so as Jesus was sitting with sinners, he was trying to confirm his love for them. He was trying to show Pharisees, showing the disciples, others around him, his love in that moment. The tax collectors, in fact, got it. The tax collectors felt the love of Jesus. They, in that moment, when they, they, they were saying, think, must have been thinking to themselves, this rabbi came to our house and he ate with us. Can you believe that? Can you imagine? And so imagine the conversations that must have happened even in those moments of like, what, you're going you're to come to my house today? We're going to sit and have a meal together? Are you okay with this? And, and trying to figure out, man, who is this Jesus? There really is something different to this teacher, to this rabbi. And it allowed Jesus to be able to lean in and to be able to really have a deeper conversation that was life-changing for people, for these tax collectors. We see it in Levi becoming Matthew. We see it in the story of Zacchaeus, that Jesus was breaking cultural barriers in order to sit and relate and allow him to position for discipleship to be able to minister to people. He was present with them. 
there are plenty of times that we can look at um, within our own context in Kenya that the phone will ring and we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up or we'll see it's a phone call from one of our local pastors usually. And usually it's a conversation kind of like this. Hey, I'm, I'm just calling you guys. just wanted to let you know that, that so-and-so, let's say Ruth, um, she just got locked out of her house uh, Ruth maybe is a single mom, a couple kids. She's not able to pay for rent. So I'm just trying to figure out what I can do because it's late in the day. We don't have an opportunity to go out and figure out something else, but we don't want her to sleep outside. What can we do? And so we figure out together as, as a community, as, as what we do within our group of churches, within coming together, we, we sit and think through, okay, let's figure out how to get Ruth in, in unlocked, just to be able to unlock her house today. Let's figure out how to get that money to her landlord today to allow now Ruth to be able to have some normal, some peace about, about that night. That allows that pastor now to have a, a deeper relationship with Ruth who is there because now Ruth feels cared for. She feels loved. She feels like now somebody in this community cares about me to the extent that I, I have a relationship and, and now I'm able to sit and, and actually go on in, in life. We have stories. A lot of the women that we work with come from really disadvantaged, terrible situations. Many of them happen to be HIV positive. Most of them are widows or have been abandoned by their husbands because of their status. Um, a lot of them are, come from tough situations in our community as well uh, because of, of finances. They have no real choices or alternatives. So many of them have resorted to prostitution in order to put food on the table that day. And so the ladies that come to us, to our community center, come to us through the local churches. And it's these phone calls that these pastors will make. And they'll say, hey, so-and-so, I just, you know, this lady just came and knocked on my door. Or maybe a congregant brought this lady to us today. What can we do? What can we do about that? So we always are finding ways in these kind of situations to allow that pastor, that church, to position for discipleship with this individual, with this person. Jesus was doing these type of things all throughout his ministry, throughout his time on earth. We've, we've looked at stories of Jesus' interactions all throughout this series. And we can see that Jesus, while he was walking towards that cross, he knew that the macro, the, the big piece about it. He focused on the micro pieces, all of these interactions that he was having with people. He was okay to create the tensions all in all of these scenarios because he believed in, in this pushing back the darkness, this sense that if I can just sit and, and take a moment and relate to this person, to this woman, to this individual, to this tax collector, if I just take time to sit with them, it will be life-changing for them. And we're pushing back the darkness, the sorrow of this world. If it's just for that moment or if it's a life-changing experience that will change that person's life, that's really what Jesus was doing doing it day in and day out as he was walking with people. And he was really giving this example to the disciples. And I really believe he was giving this example to us as well. So what does it look like for us to be like Jesus? What does it mean for us in our own place? Where are we positioned? How are we pushing back the darkness within our society? 
So part of the challenge that we have is that we have tensions. There's always that tension of thinking through, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but I, I'm, I'm just, you know, moving along, moving ahead, and we tend sort of to be in somewhat of a lull as we practice our own faith, our own Christianity. And the, the tensions kind of go like this, that um, there are divisions within our society. Uh, just like the Pharisees, kind of had their own legalistic way of life. We had tax collectors who were these immoral uh, uh, schemers. We, we had the Roman Empire that was there that was just basically putting pressure down on the society there as well. It's not too different than our situation even today. So just like the Pharisee today, who, or just like the Pharisees in that day who lost their perspectives, we can even look at church or churches or so-called churches, so-called pastors that really have lost the perspective, have lost their ways. The world looks at us as Christians and believers or us as pastors and thinks we're all, all out to buy the next big airplane. Um, but that's not it at all. We've just lost that perspective of what that looks like. Now, I'm not saying for those of us in the room that, that we're, we're to that extent, but that's really the, as the world sees us, these are the things that infiltrate into their minds. And so how do we actually fight against that? What do we talk about when we're around the world to really help them understand who Jesus was? So there are injustices throughout all of our society. We see that throughout the rest of the world. Just turn on the television, especially even like the world news, and you can see so many different things that are challenging uh, just truth, challenging good things. There's a lot of injustice, just like the Roman Empire was bringing injustice down upon the people in that society. Truth in our society is becoming more and more gray and obscured. We, we don't know what's true anymore. It's hard to see what is real. And with all of that, it's, it's, we lose perspective of who God is. We lose perspective of what does it really mean to follow Jesus. We have other inten- uh, tensions, uh, our own internal tensions. What's going on inside of us? Some of us at times can be judgmental. We might have a distorted view of others like the Pharisees, however they viewed other people. The Pharisees missed it, but the tax collectors got it. They got it because they felt the love from Jesus. So if we take a posture of judgment towards others, and when I talk about judging others, I mean, just look at this, even the state of our politics today. It's so easy to judge someone today. But I'm even talking about others. It might be a family member. It's so easy to judge a family member who's not like us, who's not doing the right thing. It's so easy for us to judge a homeless beggar who's on the median begging that day for who knows what, something to, to fill his pockets, put food on the table, to support a drug habit. We have no idea. But it's so easy for us just to run to conclusions and to really judge that person. Another personal tension inside is that many of us might find ourselves even this morning feeling broken. And so many of you might even be sitting there thinking, well, I I have no room in my own brokenness to figure out how am I going to think about where I'm helping somebody else? How am I positioning myself? Well, I don't even have time to, to even get myself in the right place, to fix myself, to get myself into a place where I can actually do something to make a difference in this world. 
Some of us have an overinflated or an underinflated or an underinflated view of ourselves. Some of us are kind of overshooting who Jesus was in the sense that, oh, I, I have achieved this so and so in my career. I've got this and that and whatever I need to do. I'm living a comfortable life. But you've kind of missed the point of what it means to actually to walk with someone day in, day out. And some of us have the the underinflated view where you can't even get to the point where you can get to Jesus because of your brokenness, because of something that is happening in your life today. My prayer is that somebody is positioned actually to come alongside and disciple you. Somebody is positioned to come and walk with you today. But we actually, even this morning, OJ referred to Regroup, which is a wonderful ministry here at Summit Church. Regroup is a wonderful place for you to step in and to figure out how to fix that brokenness, how to fix the things that are going on in your life so that you can actually understand the purpose and your calling in life and who you are supposed to be before God. It sounds scary. Uh, you know, we, we, we could be fearful and have a distorted view of our purpose, fearing what the world might say. It, it is scary today to, to be in a public place and to tell people that you're a Christian. It is not easy to do that. Um, and I have to be honest with you, even in our context of how we walk alongside of walk with the poor, Many people tend to put us up on a pedestal and say, wow, you guys have gone to Kenya, you've gone to Africa, you're working with the poor, and wow, you're doing such good things. But the truth is, it's actually really hard. There are so many days that we just feel like we've failed or we make mistakes. It's tough to get in and out of that context. It's tough to get up in the morning sometimes and think, oh, today I have to get back to sort of figuring out how am I going to help people, all, all of these needs coming, being bombarded to us. And in the midst of that, we tend to feel judgmental towards people. We end up even judging the very people that we're trying to serve at times. And so I'm just trying to be vulnerable with you a little bit in that moment as well, just to say, yes, we do it, we fight, and we're pushing back the darkness in our context. But I get it that it's hard. I understand what, it, what it's like and to be fearful in, in, in when God puts you in a particular place to figure out the next right step in that. It's not easy to put yourself out there. It's not easy when you're building relationships with people to just be in there with, with full, um, even just the physical capacity or the emotional capacity it takes to do that. It's tiring. We've felt burnout at times. Uh, there's times that are, it's just really tough to, to, to walk through that. But in the midst of that, I, I think that, that God comes alongside of us. In, the, in those moments when we feel weak, when we feel like we just can't keep doing this anymore. And maybe those of you who right now are sort of maybe the step right before that thinking, wow, I am in a place maybe where I should be pushing out a little bit, pushing against that darkness, where I should be building relationships with those in my own circle, my own society, that sort of maybe I'm, I'm a little fearful of or judgmental of, or those that maybe, I, I want to believe even this morning that God is putting somebody on your heart. He may have already done that. But some of you are not quite there yet and ready to jump in. But I just want to give you some good news with that is I think that's exactly where Jesus steps in for us. It is in that place where we feel that fear when we say, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Jesus steps in and gives us that courage because, in fact, he's the one who does it. Just like he was doing it in these examples of he was there, he was present, he was walking with people, leading by example, that he says, hey, guys, do this. Be like this. 
we're doing it today, and at times we try actually to do it without God's help. But in fact, what he said, I'm going to help you do it. And so that's the encouragement that we get out of it. The days that are hard, the situations that are difficult, working with the poor, it is not easy. It is a difficult task. But Jesus is right there in the moment, helping and being involved in that process and gives us the strength and gives us the encouragement to do it. Part of what we find ourselves having to remind ourselves, but even reminding many of our friends in Kenya as as we minister to them, is that God is far greater than the enemy, than Satan. Uh, In an African setting, pretty much anywhere in Africa, uh, the spiritual world seems to be so active. It's not unheard of to come across uh, some type of demon activity, demon possession, uh, there are spiritual things that happen to people. We hear somebody, oh, I had a terrible dream or I had a vision or somebody appeared in my house. It was an ancestor that was telling me this or that or whatever. That is just spiritual activity in that context. And I think that because in the African context, people are so open to the spiritual world that the devil actually preys on their fear and actually makes them have more fear in the midst of that. And so it's, it seems so active that it, it seems like that Satan is so active all of the time and persecuting believers and persecuting even non-believers and making himself so visible and real in that context that, he, that people tend to really fear him. And it, he's t- he tends to seem like he is louder than God himself. And so for us, one of the things that we have to do in that context, part of discipling and walking with people, and one of the very early things we try to tell people, I know that this is the situation that you're in, but let's look at the Bible. Let's look at Scripture. Let me show you how God tells us He is far greater. The Creator is far greater and far above Satan, our enemy. That God is in control. God loves us. God has a solution for everything that we do. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Redeemer in the midst of that. You know, we do that in our own culture here as well. We've got the good angel and the bad angel on their shoulders talking to us or whatever, right? We sometimes think that those voices are, are equal and competing against each other. But I just want to remind you even this morning that there is a far greater cosmic spiritual tension that's out there. And it's Satan's agenda against God's agenda. But God is fully in control of it. Satan has turned things into this gray and counterfeit world. He's been doing that since the time in Adam and Eve, just making everything that that we know or that we're familiar with, just counterfeiting what what God says and, and making it look attractive in a different way. So we lose sight of, of our real purpose in this, that when we understand that, that, that all of the counterfeit things out there are just something that's in opposition to who God is, it's, far, it's very distracting and far away from who we are and who we're really meant to be, that God has a purpose for us. Anything that's counterfeit, anything that has to do with the enemy, with Satan, it has an expiration date. Even Satan himself knows that his days are finished. And so everything that we look, all the disparity in the world, all the challenges that we go through will one day come to an end. In the meantime, it's painful because Satan is just freaking out. He's just out there knowing his days are numbered, and so he's, he's working hard against us, and particularly working hard against us as Christians, as believers. He hates us, but God loves us. God is far greater than any of those things. So the world 
is desperate for faith that combines two main things. It's this unshakable truth that points people to the love and mercy and grace of Jesus, which is kind of that macro thing that Jesus looked at. He was helping people to understand the truth. But it's also the practical power that makes a liberating difference in someone's life. And that's the micro piece. It's the practical things that you do in day in, day out. The practical things that speak into somebody's life will really speak into the greater purpose, helping somebody understand that. We're going to be taking communion uh, after the service this morning or at the end of the service this morning. And I want us to put some things together as well as we come towards that table. In order to follow the ways of Jesus, uh, he calls us to put ourselves in tough, uncomfortable situations. In fact, in my notes, I had to add the word always. Uh, At first, I just said at times he calls us to put ourselves in tough, uncomfortable situations. But I realized, you know what, it's not even at times. It always is. He calls us to that. He always calls us to put ourselves in an uncomfortable situation. And he does that so that we continue to rely on him and that we can actually see his goodness in our own lives as well. As we minister to somebody else, as we put ourselves out there, as Christ put himself out there, he comes in and and works through us. He helps us in the midst of that. It's a struggle, but with help from the Holy Spirit, he guides us. So Jesus invites us to exchange our burden of legalism for a lifelong Sabbath of the soul. He invites us to accept him as our teacher, as our rabbi, how he ministered to others, how he remained connected to God the Father in the midst of that. He invites us to reject slavery, religiosity, wealth, status, relationships, or anything else that burdens us so that we might become followers of him and participate in pushing back that darkness. This is why we do what we do. Uh, there are things that we do as a church, as a community as well. There are things like, like nice serve, for example. We go out in that community. It's not just to give you an opportunity just to go out and do something or to serve. It's an opportunity for us as the church to go out and push back the darkness. It's an opportunity for us as the church, as believers, to be able to go walk into maybe a strange place. And even for those moments that you're there, to position for discipleship to make yourself present in that moment so that somebody can see Christ, somebody can see Jesus. Our hope really isn't that somebody sees Summit Church in there, even though, you know, yes, maybe at first they see, oh, this is Summit Church coming to help. Our hope actually is that in the middle of those kind of interactions, that somebody sees Jesus. So next time you go out and do nice serve, think about what can I do today, Lord, to position myself so that I can start that process of maybe discipling someone. When I say discipleship, by the way, I'm not talking about a lifelong Bible study of sitting there, walking with people. I believe discipleship begins when you first meet someone who is not walking with Jesus. It's that very first interaction that you start and maybe you just got to know their name. That's the beginning of that relationship. Look at the life of Jesus or look at the disciples. We, We sometimes can even ask, well, when were the disciples saved? When were they born again? We don't know for sure, but Jesus started those relationships at the very first moment that he met them. Look at Matthew. He started, he, he was a disciple of Jesus that very first moment, that very first interaction that he had with Jesus. So even for you, for us, as we position ourselves to disciple someone, it's just starting that relationship with someone. So sometimes he calls us to do hard things, like welcoming sinners 
and eating with them. Today, we're going to come before our Lord's table here as well. And in a sense, we're going to be taking a meal together. Jesus is with us. This is part of our time to celebrate and to to reflect on what Jesus did for us as sinners. Um, And it's kind of sort of this uh, a bit of dichotomy here as well. That Jesus, with the tax collectors, he spent time and he ate with them. So reflect on that a little bit today as we, as we take communion together, as we come to the Lord's table, is that here we are together as sinners, that Jesus came and actually spared us in, in the midst of, of his sacrifice as we reflect on that. But also consider as you take communion this morning of what are other people out there, out there in the periphery, out there on the parameters of your life that you can start stepping towards and walking towards and invite them in to eat with you. We will only do this well when our faith drives us to depend on Jesus in our own brokenness as sinners. So we want to invite you today to have a meal at this table, to eat together as sinners gratefully rejoicing because God is with us while we do this. So as we do this, we'll do it in remembrance of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we just continue to uh, just pour ourselves out before you and, and look towards your word, look towards the life of Jesus as our greatest example of what it means for us to live our lives today. Father, you call us to to have lives full of purpose, lives full of meaning, and lives that allow us to pour ourselves out towards someone else, just like Jesus did. So, Father, I pray that you would just even today uh, take these words, take these scriptures, Lord, continue to soften our hearts, continue to challenge us, Father, to to really heal heal us, Father, in, in the midst of that. But, Father, put us in such a place that eventually we'll be able to get to a place where we will be in the context of the purpose that you've called us to, to be able to disciple others. So our prayer today, Father, is that um, even as we come to your table, that, that you'll guide us and help us. And Holy Spirit, just I pray that you just continue to work in our hearts as we take this time and do this today. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for loving us and blessing us. Amen.